Well, if you are older here this morning, and I'm going to leave that up to you whether you consider yourself older, but I'm thinking 30s and above, and so some of you are insulted that I'm putting you in the older crowd. Do you remember what it was like to be a teenager? Um, And do you ever think, man, it would be great to be be 17 again? Um, Of course, I'm not talking about some aspects of being a teenager. I'm not talking about the acne and the awkward first dates and and uh, some of the the drama that comes with those high school friendships and things like that. Uh, I'm talking about that ability that we all had to know everything about everything and and, uh, and to be good at everything. Don't you miss that a little bit? No, I know some of you teenagers are saying, okay, boomer. Uh, because the reality is we, we still have this tendency, don't we? But I, I, I used to think I was very smart when I was in my teens, and I was amazing. I thought that. Uh, I wasn't. Um, and, and what happened though is, happens, though, in, in whether you're uh, 17 or whether you're a 42-year-old man who still thinks he knows it all, um, it, it causes all kinds of problems, doesn't it? It gets us into all kinds of, I mean, the relational strain that that puts on us when, when, when we have this inflated view of ourselves. It's, it's enormous, isn't it, at whatever age. And, but I'm thinking back into those teenage years. What did I need as that 17-year-old know-it-all? What did, what did you need? What did we likely get? There were probably a couple things that helped sort of burst that um, illusory bubble for us. And one... There was probably some kind of reality check that happened. There was something that, that kind of put us back in our place. I can think of a, a few of it, maybe some things that put us back in our place. I remember I loved basketball and thought I was uh, decent at basketball. I really wasn't that good at all. But I remember going into my senior year of high school, I was so excited about this this year and, and being able to start on the varsity basketball team and... and uh, and so I started the first, first game of my senior season, but it was an away game, and I didn't play well, so we had our first home game my senior year, and I didn't get put out there to start. I didn't get put in the game at all, and I was crushed. And it was one of those moments, it's like reality check, okay, I'm not that special. <laughs> and so some of you already know this about me, but... And, and I've learned this many times over the years. But so, so you get a reality check, and that probably helped. And then the other thing, you're, probably your parents, somebody that was close to you that knows you well, somebody that cares enough about you would say rather firm words to you to help correct this tendency that maybe you don't know everything like you think you do. Well, listen, the Corinthian church was, was acting like a group of kind of know-it-alls. This is, this is what we find. They, they thought they had everything figured out. They thought they, they, they were it. And, and so in this inflated view of themselves, we've been looking at this over the last several weeks, it, it caused all kinds of problems within the congregation. It caused all kinds of relational strain in particular within this church that we've been looking at. So the, the, the fellowship began to descend into this kind of judgmentalism, looking down on one another, boasting in themselves, factionalism, uh, divisiveness, and all of this is driven and fueled by, by their unchecked pride. And so Paul's been pointing to this again and again, and what did they need? What did this church need? They needed those same things we need and needed as we were younger, a reality check and a fatherly parental charge. And that's exactly what Paul gives them in these last verses of, 
of chapter 4. So again, I mean, he's been addressing these issues with them since the really the second half of chapter 1 of this letter. And, and as we look at this part of chapter 4, we're really seeing him kind of land the plane on this, this discussion, at least addressing it directly. It's going to come up again throughout the letter. But, but he's, he's really bringing his, his argument to a close before he moves on to something else. And what he does, he offers these two final remedies, these two remedies for their, for our problem of pride-fueled division in the church. And it's those that we just mentioned. So the first one is this, and I'm, I don't have slides for you, but this is simple. The first remedy that we need, brothers and sisters, is a reality check. And this is what he gives them. Reality check. Reality check, we understand. That's something that, that brings us back into you know, reality, the way things really are. Generally, it's by correcting some kind of misconception that we have uh, about reality. So, you, you know, someone sees a shiny sports car, and they pull up, you know, pulls up next to them at the stoplight, they think, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy one of those. And then they go home and they check and see how much that car costs, how much they have in the bank account, and boom, reality check. No, nope, don't have it. I can't do it. And, uh, and so we, we, that, that perception of reality that we have, it, it, was, it was wrong and, we, and it needs to be correct, corrected. That's a very simple analogy, but that's, that's what we're talking about. So the Corinthian church, it was filled with, filled with people who had this faulty perception of the way things really are. And they had faulty expectations, in, in fact, about the Christian life. They had, they had this romanticized perception about what life in the church was like and, and what the Christian life was really about and, and, and it was a misconception. And so Paul's dealing with that. We, we do premarital counseling at times. We have with some of the folks in this church. And, and, and a part of that premarital counseling, it's, it's, it's kind of it's preparing them for the reality check that's coming. <laughs> they, you, know, you see them and, oh, this is just going to be amazing. It's going to be eternal bliss. And we're not going to have problems like others. And, okay, well, let's talk about some of those problems you're probably going to face. And, and so some of, some of the common fault lines we talk about in marriage, you know, it, it becomes things like money, sex, in-laws, children. These are, these are like the four areas, and there's others, but these are four areas where you're, you're going to have problems. You're going to have difficulty. There's going to be frustrations. There's going to be arguments related to one or more of those issues. And why, why in particular are those the areas of marriage that we, we tend to, to struggle the most? It's because there's something running through each one of those that, that, um, that makes them so volatile. And it's this very thing we're talking about. They, they're loaded with expectations about how things are going to be. We have, we have unreal, unrealistic ideas about the way things will be in our marriage or, or unrealistic ideas about our spouse's um, needs or their abilities. And so we make all kinds of assumptions and we create this this alternate reality in our minds about how things are going to go down in our marriage and what it's going to be like, and then things inevitably just blow up. And then we're doing postmarital counseling. And, 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 and so as much as you prepare people, it, it, it doesn't always register on the front end, but, but our unrealistic uh, expectations about things like money and sex and in-laws and children, they, they're, not, they're not sources of joy. And strength in marriage, as they're intended to be, and and then often they become sources of tension and and friction within a marriage. And so they, they those faulty expectations they can steal joy, and and they will inevitably fracture relationships. 
And so that's, that's what was happening, again, in the fellowship at Corinth. They, this was what was behind much of the division and the disunity and the difficulty that they were facing. They had wrong expectations about the church, unrealistic expectations about the nature of the Christian life and what that was like together. And so look at verses 8 through 13 with me, and we can see some of the things that the Corinthians were thinking and, and, and the way that they were talking about themselves. And it's like Paul's holding up a mirror to them and, 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 and to, the, to these know-it-alls with this large helping of stinging irony and sarcasm. I hope that you, I don't think it's hard to pick this up when, in verses 8 and following here. I mean, he's just, he's just loaded with kind of this sarcastic language. And look at verse 8. He's saying, this is, this is how you are. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. It literally, you've begun to reign. Oh, you're already reigning. Verse 8, he goes on, and, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He's saying, you think you've arrived. You think that all of the glories to come, they have already dawned upon you and, and, and all of their fullness. And, and, and if only that was true. If, it, if only it was. Look down to verse 10 and just to, to take part of these phrases. You are wise in Christ. You are strong. You are held in honor. This is how the Corinthians saw themselves. They, they boasted in their spiritual superiority. They boasted in their profound wisdom and, and greatness and insight. They boasted in the reputation as being this powerful church with powerful leaders. We're going to see later they boasted in their supernatural gifts that the Lord had blessed them with. And they're essentially saying, we've arrived. The end of the ages has come. And, and that the, the new world is already here that the Lord has promised. And we are at the center of it. This is how they're thinking. Now, uh, of course, we, we, there, there is this, there's this kind of this eschatological language that's tied up in, in, into this, this, the thinking of these Corinthians. And so, now we, of course, brothers and sisters, we are to look forward to the fullness of all things, to the coming end of the age when Christ himself will return. We have all of these wonderful words in Scripture that point to this. The New Testament itself, it closes with the Spirit and the Bride, the Church, exclaiming to the Lord Jesus Christ, come! This is how it ends. And, and so we, we see that. We wait for the consummation, Scripture says, of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter 1.5. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, 2, 2 Peter 3.13. But as Christians, we, we also rejoice that Jesus has risen from the dead and Jesus has already begun his reign. And so we walk that line. All, all authority in heaven and on earth is already his, Matthew 28, 18. We have already, in the sense, been swept up into his kingdom. We are kingdom citizens, we could say. God has already, Paul says to the Colossians, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son that he loves. And so in one sense, we're oriented to the future, and we should be, and we're waiting for the coming kingdom. And in another sense, we've already been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. And so we, we have to keep that balance right in our minds, that, that already not yet balance that Scripture gives us. And so the Corinthians, though, they have lost their, their balance. And I don't necessarily mean theologically speaking. I don't think their, their big problem was 
I mean, there was some correction needed, and he'll give some of that in this letter, but it wasn't so much a theological understanding of the end times, of eschatology. I think it was practically how, how they were living. They thought, they lived, they spoke as if the end is already here. We're, we're in it. We, we've got it already. There's nothing more to come. We're rich. We're strong. We've already begun to reign. We're wise. We're, we're honorable. This is how they're thinking. And the key word that sums up their view of Christian blessing in this world is there in verse 8. It's two times. It says already. Already. They've al- they already have what they want. They already are fully satisfied. They, they, they are already self-sufficient. One commentator describes the, the essence of their boasting as this. He says, at the heart of the boasting at Corinth was the conviction that they were really a very successful, lively, mature, and effective church. The Christians were satisfied with their spirituality, their leadership, and the general quality of their life together. They had settled down into the illusion that they had become the best they could be. They thought they had arrived. That's a dangerous state to be in, isn't it? For a Christian, individual Christian, for a church in particular. It's a sobering, I think, a warning for us, even as a local church. We, we need to hear this. Churches can think that they've arrived. Churches like Baraka in particular, we, we can have reputations for being a rich church. I don't mean rich in material blessings, but rich in the sense and wealthy in, in biblical teaching and instruction with that legacy. And we begin, can begin to take pride in the, the fact that, uh, that people say, oh, we're a Bible-teaching church. And we begin to think we've arrived. There's nothing more to learn. Or churches like ours can think we've arrived because of some other, other standard, maybe in our case, like because we're debt-free. We have these wonderful facilities and, and don't pay a, a dime for any mortgage. And we, wow, good, good for us. Or because of our reputation as a missions church and, and, and what we're doing and sending and supporting missionaries. And listen, the pride of complacency can settle in. It can. There can be a a kind of smugness and a sense of satisfaction that grows. And that's what's happening in Corinth. And Paul's saying, nope, I'm not standing for it. And and so look look at how he contrasts himself in verse 9. He's giving them, he's giving us this reality check. Verse 9. So this is you. Already you have, you've arrived. But then he says, but us apostles. For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. So the Corinthians are claiming to live in the, the heights of spiritual victory, but here's the apostle Paul himself, this pathetic public spectacle, like someone sentenced to die, considered a fool for Christ's sake, weak, pitiable. You see that, that contrast. And the, if the key word that summed up the Corinthians' uh, error was, was that word already, for Paul, his alternative is there in verse 11. Look at verse 11. To the present hour. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. Presently, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. 
So, so Paul's looking forward to the coming kingdom, and that's going to be abundantly clear through this letter. But also, he is living in the present hour, he says. This is, this is now, and in the present hour, to follow Jesus meant affliction and hardship and difficulty for him and for others. It goes on in verse 12, and we labor... Working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, listen to this, like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. So you see this enormous gap between the Corinthians' self-estimation and how things were for them. They're rich and they're kingly. And you see the reality that's faced by Paul. Suffering and persecution and difficulty. This gap couldn't be greater. Paul's giving them this reality check and saying, here, just come back. Come back to the way things really are now in this present hour. He's not complaining here. That's not, that's not his point. He's not throwing himself a little pity party like, oh, poor pitiful me. No, he's just giving the Corinthians, he's giving us this this heaping dose of reality. They needed to get their unrealistic expectations back in line. Why? Because those, those kinds of unrealistic expectations, they're the seedbed for pride in our lives. And that's what he's really getting at here. And, and, and a few things can happen when we buy into this Corinthian misconception that's evident here. They're, either we're going to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are, in fact, a cut above the rest which was a big issue in Corinth, that we will we'll begin to boast of our spiritual superiority and, and then look down upon others who don't measure up to our, our standards. Or we'll conclude that our failure to reach our you know, best life now, it's, it's just us. It's dependent upon us. And, 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 and we'll be overly self-critical and we'll think we failed if we're not firing on all cylinders all the time. So, so what is it, though? What is it? Again, this is what Paul's doing. We're going to see this throughout this letter. Everything he, he does, he's, he's wanting us to see through the lens of the gospel, to think about them through the lens of the gospel. And so what is he doing he's, to help us to point back to true reality? He's looking to the cross. You, you see that. And, and, and that's what he's really pointing to is he's describing himself as an apostle and the other apostles, the way they're living. It's, it's to live in light of Christ crucified. This is, this is the message. The message isn't one of victory in the eyes of the world, but of defeat. It's of Christ crucified. Going back to chapters 1 and 2, the more the, more the message of the Christ, uh, excuse me, the more the message of the cross, brothers and sisters, is assumed for us as a church instead of being cherished and believed and trusted in, the more that it's assumed and, and sort of treated casually, the more skewed our perspective on reality will become. You get that. And, and that leaves the door wide open for f- this pride-fueled division in a church. In a church that's gifted, in a church that has good leaders, in a church that has so much potential, that door can be opened if we, if we marginalize the message of Jesus Christ crucified and treat it as sort of a side note instead of the essence of everything that we are. So that's the first remedy. They need, this, they need this reality check. And then the second one is this, and that's, this is simply it, is that we see this fatherly charge. There's this marked change of tone in verse 14. Now, having this kind of sternly rebuked the congregation there in Corinth and in this sarcastic language, Paul, Paul's language becomes very warm 
and affectionate and tender here. And he's this family language. These are people Paul knows well. Remember, he spent a couple years with them and, and, and laboring alongside them and with them. And he loves these people dearly, dearly, no matter how exasperating their behavior is at the time that he's writing this letter. He profoundly cares for this church. Not just in general, but the, the lives of souls that make up this body. And so, so Paul assumes the role here of a, a father speaking firmly but tenderly to a disobedient child. That's the language. And so verse 14, I, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's not, not trying to shame them. He's not, his goal is not to make them cringe and, 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 and feel awful about themselves and just kind of slink away and feeling like dirt. That's not it. He's simply wanting to bring them to reality. To, just like a father, to, to heal the thing that's destroying them. This is how he's looking at them and damaging the church there. Their, their boasting is out of control and it's causing all kinds of problems. And so with the love of a father, he is, he is admonishing them. He goes on to verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he's like a spiritual father to them, a parent to them through the gospel. They have, they have numerous guides or guardians, some of your translations might say. The, the, the little word is it's pedagogues, and you may be familiar with that word. But it, it, it's a, this, this word in the first century described a, a servant who, who looked after a master's child. And so they would take them to school, they would help them with their studies and, and, and to learn, and they would just kind of look after their general well-being. And so the Corinthian church, Paul says, yeah, you have many guardians, many guides like this, but you have one father in the faith. And he, he's not saying that he's the one that brought about their conversion as if he had that in him. Not at all. No, he's very clear. He became their father in Christ and through the gospel. He, he preached the gospel to them, and as he preached by God's grace, the Lord transformed them through the gospel that is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. And so, so now as their father, he uses these three parental tools to drive home his admonition to them. And these are, these are three tools that probably every mom and dad in here has used at one time or another. And so the first one we see, he, he calls on them to follow his example. You see this in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now, there, there's a logic that could be missed easily kind of to our modern Western ears and as, as readers. In our families, there's really not much pressure on children to, to imitate his or her parents. Um, in, in fact, it's kind of seen, we see it as sort of a positive attribute when they kind of blaze their own trail and they, they come out of their parents' shadows and, and we see that as a good thing. But in the first century and in most pre-industrial cultures, honestly, even today, they're, that sons in particular were expected to imitate their fathers. If their father's vocation, if father's a baker, you're going to be a baker. If the father's a farmer, you're going to be a farmer. If the father's a fisherman, you're going to be a fisherman. And, and the family values and the, and the family heritage and family legacy and name, all of those things are to be, to be modeled and imitated. That was, that was expected and, and accepted in the, in the, in the culture. And so, so <coughs> keep that cultural expectation in mind. As we look at this analogy, Paul argues that if he became their fa the father to the Corinthians, what is he saying? You should imitate me. You should imitate me. And 
What does he mean by that? He's, a, he's not saying, remember, going back to the context of all the divisions there, you know, I follow, I follow, follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, and on and on. They had their leaders of choice. And he's not saying, you know, push all those other imbeciles aside, follow me. I'm the one. That's not what he's saying. He's not promoting, you know, no more factionalism, just follow me and everything will be fine. No, he's saying what he means is they should imitate him by making sure that everything they do is done in light of the gospel. That's the context here. He wants him to imitate his pattern of living life in light of the cross. He doesn't expect them to suffer in exactly the same ways that he has suffered. He doesn't expect them to you know, become apostles or to, to go uh, distant places and plant churches. What he's urging them to do is to emulate his values. Primarily, his, his valuation of the centrality of the gospel of, cross, of Christ crucified. This is what he's saying. Imitate me in this way. And so that's the first parental tool. Then he, then he does another thing here. He deploys big brother. See, it's in verse 17. Sometimes, listen, in families, big brother or big sister, no offense, or even younger siblings, they, they can get through when mom or dad can't. And so verse 17, he says, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord their brother, to, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And so he sends Timothy to be there in his place since he can't come to them right now. And so Paul's represented by Timothy, as it were, his child in the faith and, and, and both in the way he lives and his teaching. And then third, quickly, he uses, I know you parents have used this one, don't make me come up there. <laughs> All right, I'm coming up there. Uh, this is what he does in verses 18 to 21. Uh, if, you're, if you deny that you ever said anything like that, uh, you're a liar. Okay. Um, verse 18, he says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. So, so apparently there were some in the congregation who are, who are puffed up. This is that word we looked at last week. They're puffed up. They're arrogant. They, they either were telling people Paul's not actually going to come, or, or they're living like... Paul's not going to actually come and address these issues. And so one way or another, he's, but what is it? That's not the case. He says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but the power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So, so the proud know-it-alls in Corinth, he's saying, they're all talk. <laughs> they have no power. They, they, had, they had their wisdom, their words of wisdom that appeared powerful. You can think of the context of, Chapters 1 and 2, but it's empty because the power of God is not revealed in the wisdom of man, but in the gospel of God. And so, again, think back to chapter 1. The, the Corinthians are intoxicated with these, these word, persuasive words of wisdom with rhetoric and, and polish and eloquence and speech and, and, and oratory and all of these things. And what does he say? Those things actually empty the, the cross of power. Chapter 1, verse 17. By focusing on them. And, and so as they're enamored with those things, the, the, those things became more important than the message of Christ crucified. And so they became more interested in promoting themselves than in preaching the gospel that is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We saw that in chapter 2. And so when Paul shows up, he says, he's not going to be impressed by their talk. It's not what he's paying attention to. He is, he is seeing right through it. He's looking for one thing. He's looking for the power, the gospel. 
The gospel of the kingdom. He's, he's interested in that. What power do they have? Is the gospel front and center and powerfully working among them? That's what he's looking for. So what we see, Paul's pursuing them. He's pursuing these children he loves. He's using every parental tool in the tool bag to, to bring them back from this church-destroying pride that they're getting eaten up with, and he'll do whatever it takes, even to use discipline if necessary. Don't make me come up there. <laughs> All right, I'm coming. Look at verse 21. What, what do you wish? What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, here's the contrast. He, he doesn't mean that if he comes to them with the rod, he's, going to be, he's not going to be coming in love. That's not his point. He's contrasting the manner of his coming, the form, not, the, not his motives in coming. But listen, this parent, children, let me get an amen. Spankings do hurt. <laughs> they do. Even from a father who's spanking a son only because he loves his son with the best of motives and in the most controlled way, it still hurts. It's always much better for the son to change his behavior so that the form of the father's coming upstairs will not be in the form of the rod and discipline, but with a gentle spirit. It's always better. And, and it's how they respond to the fatherly charge that's going to determine which route, which form Paul comes in. That's, what, that's the point he's making. Listen, we don't have to worry about Paul showing up on our campus and coming with a rod or in the spirit of gentleness, but... But we, there, there's implications of this. Hebrews 12 speaks to this, that God is like a loving father who disciplines us as his children. Not to condemn or punish us, but to restore us, to correct us, to protect us, to, to help us, to teach us. And we can be sure, assured that it's always good. It's, it's only born out of love. There's not a single ounce of wrath mixed in with his discipline of us as his children. Why do we know that? Because Jesus has already taken on the punishment in full, all that we deserve. He's paid the price for our sin, taken our place on the cross in our place, and, and we can be assured then that there's nothing but love in the Father's heart for us. But Hebrews 12 says, so turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll end here. He begins the chapter saying, we've we got to lay aside every weight of sin and any, any kind of uh, encumbrance that would, that would cling closely to us, hold us back so that we can run this race that's marked, set before us with, with endurance. And then where's our gaze to be? It's on Jesus, not just Jesus in general, but Christ crucified. Look at verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Not just a contributor, but he is the, the author. He is the perfecter, the, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then we read on in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father, whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What is he saying? Brothers and sisters, we are loved and received as sons because of Christ. It's not because of some natural innate goodness in us or beauty in us. We, are, we were enemies of God. We had fists. We came out of the womb with our fists raised against the Lord and rebellion against him because of the fall. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to make us sons of God. And as his sons, he refuses us to leave us as we are. We, 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 don't, listen, we don't try to grow and, as Christians and to obey and to avoid sinning. We don't do those things to earn his approval, to earn our status as sons. No, we labor hard to do those things. We press on with endurance in those things because we have his approval. We are his children. And so we know that the discipline he brings in our lives is only and always for our good and out of his love for us. And if ever that was in question, we're reminded uh, of the, this reality, if this is a reality check, there's no greater reality check for us as a church than to come and, and to the table, to eat and drink and remember Christ. And we can, it's this exclamation point that it's been done by Jesus. Now, it's interesting. In this very letter, Paul makes it clear that, that this, this table, that we're going to eat and drink in a moment together, remember Christ together, it speaks to the matter of divisions, proud divisions in the church. And so the, he gets to chapter 11 within this very letter, and the table, this table communicates. We come on level ground. Any boasting, any divisiveness, any judgmentalism, any party spirit that we come and bring to the table, that means we mis, misconceive what this is intended. So you get to chapter 11, verse 17, but in the following instructions, he says, I do not commend you. This is a scolding. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it, in part, that there must, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? That's his words, not mine. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? It's become this class warfare and this, this, this superiority fest that within the church at Corinth when they come and eat and drink. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then he goes on. Words we're very familiar with. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for speaking to us today through your word. Thank you for your love that rebukes and chastens us, even when it's painful. We thank you that you're treating us as sons, much-loved sons. Even, even this is a tremendous demonstration of your mercy and grace towards us. Lord, help us by your spirit to put away any sense of boasting or satisfaction we have with ourselves, but put away complacency and pride and judgmentalism and, and that know-it-all attitude that we so often carry. But thank you, Lord, that we who, who often judge are no longer judged by you. We who are boastful and proud will never be crushed by you because we have been washed, we have been forgiven, we have been justified, we have been redeemed. Not because we bought our way out of condemnation by our good deeds, but because Jesus has paid it all for us. So help us to revel in this as we eat and drink together now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.